Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eats Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, a Senior Managing Director in FTI's Forensic and Litigation Consulting segment, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. Thank you for listening. In this episode, we're going to discuss trade-based money laundering. According to Intergovernmental Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing Watchdog, the Financial Action Task Force, FATF, there are three primary methods that transnational criminal and terrorist organizations utilize to launder the proceeds of illicit activity and to use illicit proceeds to finance terrorist operations. Number one, through the use of the financial system. Two, through physical movement of hard currency by the use of couriers and smuggling techniques. And three, through the physical movement of commercial and consumer goods in international trade. This third category is referred to as trade-based money laundering. Given the enormous volume of goods that transit international borders, it is arguably the most challenging of the three money laundering methods to counter. Joining us today are two experts on trade-based money laundering, White & Case White Collar Crime partner Jonah Anderson and research fellow at the Center for Financial Crime and Security Studies at UK think tank, the Royal United Services Institute, Anton Moisienko. Jonah advises on sensitive financial crime issues and helps clients navigate the criminal and regulatory landscape with a focus on bribery and corruption, fraud, tax evasion, and anti-money laundering law and regulation. He also conducts internal investigations both within the UK and overseas and advises corporates and individuals on financial crime investigations and prosecutions by the UK authorities, including the Serious Fraud Office, HM Revenue and Customs, the National Crime Agency, the Financial Conduct Authority, and the police. Anton Moisienko is a research fellow at the Center for Financial Crime and Security Studies at RUSI, where his research focuses on matters related to trade-based money laundering and crime in free ports, among other things. Welcome, Jonah and Anton, and thanks for joining me today. Hey, Scott. Hey, Anton. Good to be here. Hi. Thanks for having me. Great to have you both. So, Anton, before we get into today's topic, I think our listeners would be interested in hearing about the mission of RUSI and how a think tank founded for the study of defense and security thought it necessary to expand into the study of money laundering and terrorist financing. Thanks, Scott. RUSI, or the Royal United Services Institute, was founded a very long time ago indeed, in 1831, to conduct research in matters related at the time mostly to waging war and hard issues of national security. And for better or worse, I guess probably for worse, the nature of national security threats has changed over these intervening centuries and has become much more diverse. And that means that now the Institute has research groups that also focus on issues such as, in our case, financial crime, but also organized crime, terrorism, and cybersecurity. And the team within the Institute within which I work, the Center for Financial Crime and Security Studies, was founded in 2015 by our director, Tom Keating, and looks at matters at the intersection of finance and security. But everything that we do is focused on policy and regulations. So we don't do investigations or due diligence or anything like that. No, that's that's really interesting. And, and it's certainly interesting to hear how the think tank 
that's been in existence for so long has necessarily had to evolve to take into consideration the evolving threats. So that's interesting how your mission has changed over time. So most people associate money laundering with the misuse of financial institutions or the bulk movement of hard currency using smuggling techniques. Jonah, what is trade-based money laundering and how does it work? So trade-based money laundering is probably seen as one of the least accessible money laundering concepts. And that's because the schemes are usually complex. But in essence, trade-based money laundering involves disguising the proceeds of crime and moving value through the use of trade transactions in an attempt to legitimize their illegal origin. And almost any kind of goods, service, or sector can be used for that purpose, anything from cars to precious metals. And I'll give a couple of brief examples using personal protective equipment, given we're in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. So a simple example might be you have a Colombian drugs trafficker purchasing a million dollars of PPE in China and selling that to a third party in Mexico for $1.2 million. There's a slight profit, but the trade transaction was really a means for them to covertly move a million dollars for Colombia to Mexico, and the PPE acted as a store of value to permit that. Now, the operation of that PPE business might be such that it, the drug traffickers just injecting criminal funds into a business that would otherwise be legitimate. And for organized crime groups who want to move large amounts of money via a trade-based money laundering scheme, a more efficient way of doing this is to maybe misrepresent the value of the goods. And they could do this by inflating the amount of the invoice so that the payment exceeds the value of the goods. Or they might do things via a different method and they might under-invoice by shipping goods with a greater value than the payment. They might do multiple invoices relating to the same shipment. Or it might be that the goods don't even exist, and that's sometimes called ghost or phantom shipping. There might be multiple related party transactions regarding the same goods, which represent the layering stage of the money laundering scheme. So another example, you could have Chinese human trafficker purchasing a million dollars of PPE in China via a shell company, and another shell company controlled by him purchased the PPE for $2 million. The overpayment allows for the movement of an extra million dollars from one shell company to another. But from these simple examples, trade-based money laundering schemes can evolve to cover multiple stages and involve many different parties. And for that reason, you often have like a professional money launderer is needed to orchestrate those schemes. And they engage in like other potentially unlawful activities, such as preparing the false invoices as discussed or mischaracterizing the goods to circumvent controls and other customs and tax violations. Thanks, Jonah. So, Anton, it's estimated that the value of goods exported across the globe in 2019 was $19 trillion. Global seaborne freight in 2018 was estimated at 11 billion metric tons, and air freight volumes for 2020 is estimated at 54.2 billion metric tons. Only a tiny percentage of cargo is inspected, given these enormous volumes. Every year, global air freight and shipping logistics companies are used to transport all manner of contraband, including narcotics, weapons, and human trafficking. Intercepting contraband at the ports and air cargo hubs is an ongoing challenge. What are some typologies that global logistics companies and customs officials should be alert for when seeking to detect goods in transit that are being used to facilitate trade-based money laundering? I think the short answer is exceedingly difficult for them to identify those typologies. 
or to know what they should be looking for. If you try to do your own research and trade-based money laundering, probably the best sources of information you can come across would be publications by the likes of the Financial Action Task Force or the Government Accountability Office in the US, and those would be focused predominantly on the role of the financial sector. So there would be some red flags that banks, for instance, should be aware of if they're worried that their customer might be involved in trade-based money laundering. For example, a customer might be receiving payments from various third parties rather than the client that is buying the goods from that customer, etc. But if you're a shipping line, none of that applies. And as you say, you can't really open many containers at all. So it seems from our research that mostly shipping lines and other transport intermediaries would rely on tip-offs. And of course, that's a very imperfect way of dealing with that problem. There have also been some initiatives in the industry to incentivize shipping lines and freight forwarders to conduct some sort of customer due diligence on their own clients. But those have mostly been driven forward in the context of the trade in counterfeit products. There was a declaration of intent that several major shipping lines and freight forwarders signed up to in 2016, but it seems that it has not had the intended effect. And so there is very limited access to typologies, what sort of goods you should be looking for. There is very limited, if any, incentive to actually understand who your customer is. And that creates a very difficult situation for shipping lines and other logistics intermediaries. And I think that, unfortunately, a lot of the customs agencies are in a very similar position. They would tell you that if they had to check any sizable number of containers, that could paralyze the operations of a port for a day, which is clearly unacceptable from the standpoint of trade facilitation. They might get input from parties with vested interests, such as rights holders in the case of counterfeit shipments, so they might receive information on illicit trade, but that is not the same as trade-based money laundering. And so when you look at all those things taken together, it is perhaps understandable why trade-based money laundering is not only one of the three major typologies of cross-border money movement, but it also remains a blind spot for many of the parties involved. Thanks, Anton. I think from a practical perspective and following on from your points, Anton, when I look at the practical side of this, whether it's a law enforcement investigation or whether it's a private party who's interested or concerned about trade-based money laundering, it's largely driven by FATF's work. So the FATF red flags that they put forward in relation to trade-based money laundering, if there's a tip-off, then they apply the red flags and that sort of ties in with their suspicions that arise and they look further at something as against those red flags. Now, private parties, I think FATF is educating people about this as a concern, and it's more likely that private parties will be concerned about addressing trade-based money laundering risks within their broader compliance program. And like you noted, this is a very difficult issue to deal with. It's very difficult because it's hard to detect and therefore, it's hard for law enforcement to investigate and prosecute individuals in relation to this type of conduct. But there is an element that schemes can be somewhat disrupted in terms of private parties having a compliance program in place. No, those are really good points. And I think the other thing that really makes trade-based laundering more challenging than other laundering techniques is in essence, once the goods have been acquired, the laundering has happened. The illicit money has now been converted into goods that are indistinguishable from goods that were sourced legitimately. So you can't look at something and tell what its point of origin is or how it was acquired 
it has to happen at the point when the illicit money is being introduced into the transaction at the point that those goods are being purchased with illicit money. So bonded warehouses and free trade zones play important roles in international exporting and importing operations. What are they and what role do they play and how or are they an obstacle to overcome or potentially are they an important part of the mitigation of trade-based money laundering? And maybe we start with Anton and then Jonah. Well, free trade zones have recently been seen as frequently been seen as bad apples in the world of international trade. And the reputation is not always well-deserved in that free trade zones can be very different from one another. The basic feature of both bonded warehouses and free trade zones is that goods can be introduced into them without the payment of customs duties, and that is supposed to facilitate trade. In the case of free trade zones in particular, those can be quite significant geographical areas, so it can be a big port, and there can be other regulatory and business and infrastructure incentives that would be offered in addition to the basic idea of not applying customs duties. So you would have free trade zones occasionally with a different anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing regime, with different rules on the transparency of legal entities that are incorporated there. Sometimes they would have distinct corporate regimes and labor regulations. And when you look at all of this taken together, on paper, you could say, okay, a free trade zone might have all those different components of this overall trade facilitation regime, but still be perfectly well supervised and not be conducive to criminality in any way. The concern is that in practice, because of this overarching imperative of facilitating trade, the supervisory regime and customs activities in free trade zones are not always as rigorous as they should be, and not always as rigorous as they would be in other parts of the same country. And that has prompted organizations like the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, to promulgate the Code of Conduct for Clean Free Trade Zones in 2019, which is a set of standards as to how free trade zones should run when it comes to preventing illicit trade. And of course, all of that has significant relevance in the world of trade-based money laundering as it does in the world of illicit trade. I'd say that from my perspective, free trade zones are something that I see again and again in investigations. And sometimes it's just through the use of a company incorporated in a free trade zone. And that's being used as a shell company designed to obscure the ownership of it. And it might be a vehicle for bribery, fraud, sanctions, evasion, or money laundering, whether trade-based or not. And echoing what Anton said, Last summer, the UK government described the free ports that we're planning on using pretty heavily over here if the government continues down this course as hubs for business and enterprise for both manufacturing and services trade. These could be free of unnecessary checks and paperwork and include customs and tax benefits. And the minimization of bureaucracy is, is often welcome, but lesser oversight can assist organized crime groups with their smuggling, counterfeiting or other operations. And that's always a risk with light touch regulation. And at the moment, from a regulatory perspective in the EU and the UK, when you look at free ports from an AML perspective, it's in the context of the storage of works of art, which is extremely narrow. And that means, again, it ties in with this sort of laissez-faire approach and there are risks with that. So from a practical perspective, you also see free trade zones coming up in the use of 
disguising shipments to facilitate the circumvention of sanctions. And you do see them as a hub for trade-based money laundering schemes in terms of goods transiting in and out, maybe different valuations or in amounts that don't match the invoice. And of course, they can be used to avoid duties or they can be used for multiple different purposes. And these can be hard to detect. So there are some benefits for commerce, but it's kind of like everything else from a regulation perspective. The less regulation, the more potential risk you might have. More regulation might impact and damage commercial businesses. And it's about trying to find the balance between those two competing concepts. So at times, and I think, Jonah, you mentioned it earlier in your remarks, that people involved in trade-based money laundering may either under-invoice the goods in transit to understate their value and limit the customs duties, or they may do the opposite and they may overstate the value of goods in transit or perhaps shift the tax obligations attached to the sale of the goods from one from the country of origin to the lower tax jurisdiction to which the goods are being shipped. What is the impact of these two tactics on trade-based laundering? Well, it's, it's the kind of trade-based money laundering that has attracted the greatest scrutiny and attention from the people who research this subject. So, for instance, Global Financial Integrity, a think tank based in the US, regularly publishes their estimate of the volumes of over-invoicing and under-invoicing around the world, particularly in the trade between developing countries and developed countries. I think the reason for this is that the idea of over-invoicing and under-invoicing is something that you can try to quantify and something that you might be able to quantify based on official trade statistics that are published by different countries. A very similar idea lies at the heart of trade transparency units that were first introduced by the United States and promoted by Homeland Security around the world, which is basically the notion of taking bilateral trading data between two countries and identifying discrepancies and saying country A thinks it has exported more goods of a certain category into country B than country B thinks it has imported of those goods. Why is that difference there? Is that an indication of some sort of criminal misuse or trade-based money laundering? So it's an issue that has attracted attention. In practice, it's extremely difficult to detect this kind of trade-based money laundering for a host of practical reasons. First of all, if you're a customs officer, how would you know what a fair price for certain goods is? It's extremely difficult to say. And in the context of fixation, the whole area of transfer pricing is all about uh, valuing different commodities in related party transactions. It's extremely difficult to do, and you can't really expect customs inspectors to be able to undertake that exercise. And that also links to the point that we discussed previously, which is that if you are a customs authority, very often you would simply not have the capacity to inspect the actual goods. So whatever checks you conduct would be based on the documents rather than what's actually there in the container. So an area that has been in the focus of attention, a lot of practical difficulties in detecting. And also, I think back to your point, Scott, we need to recognize that perhaps the most problematic point, the most crucial point in any trade-based money laundering scheme is not so much the overpricing or underpricing as it is the moment when illicit funds are being integrated into the transaction and are used to purchase the goods that are then being traded. I would say, Anton, it goes back to your earlier point of you need a tip-off 
often from the perspective of law enforcement, they're reacting to intelligence they've got to uncover these schemes and disrupt them. And the issue you have with even a law enforcement investigation into the pricing of commodities is quite often you're going to end up in a dueling experts scenario where law enforcement instructs an expert on valuation and the suspect instructs an, an expert on valuation. And they're likely to come to pretty different conclusions about that specific commodity. And so it's a difficult case from that perspective. Oh, no, thank you both. So you know, trade-based money laundering is most effective when the exporter and importer work in collusion. Indeed, often the exporter and the importer in trade-based money laundering are owned or controlled by the same criminal organization. So what are some techniques that investigators and compliance officers use to detect these undisclosed relationships between shipper and recipient or to you know, unearth other red flags suggesting the possibility that goods in shipment are part of a trade-based money laundering scheme? So from the perspective of global logistics companies, I think it's about knowing your counterparty. And on a more general basis for private companies, it's about knowing your counterparty and knowing your supply chain. And certainly the kind of trend with various laws in the UK, whether it's the Bribery Act, whether it's laws under the Criminal Finance Act relating to the facilitation of tax evasion, or whether it's the Modern Slavery Act, the government guidance in relation to all those acts is very much focusing on this idea of conducting due diligence on your counterparties, your supply chains, etc. So a robust compliance program that includes specific measures to address trade-based money laundering is going to be helpful in combating that. And of course, we're talking about corruption as an aside there, but one issue that has a significant impact on customs' ability to combat trade-based money laundering or indeed other issues is bribery. The common example of a facilitation payment is a sum paid to clear customs quicker. Under UK law, facilitation payments clearly a bribe. And there's zero tolerance of those sorts of payments as a standard for global companies. But bribery is never a victimless crime. And those sorts of payments fundamentally compromise customs frameworks of certain countries. And that's a knock-on effect. And of course, organized criminal gangs are going to be no stranger to bribery. And I think it's important to flag some of the other ways that law enforcement makes inroads into disrupting money laundering schemes. So, of course, identifying and prosecuting the individuals responsible has a knock-on effect, but you can also disrupt schemes by seizing or restraining goods. And when law enforcement is looking at a complex money laundering scheme, what they want to find is the central figure in that scheme, the professional money launderer. And that's what they set out to do. That's their strategy to unlock those types of cases. And that's true whether it's, you know, the predicate crimes, human trafficking, or it's a focus of an investigation on a politically exposed person who's taking bribes and washing their money through family members, or, you know, they need a corrupt lawyer or accountant to help them with that scheme. Law enforcement can try and identify that person and crack it open. And that means they get a much better understanding of the scheme and the size of the criminal enterprise. And of course, while the point of a trade-based money laundering scheme is to reduce the use of the financial system, 
there are various touch points. You know, at some point you're using bank accounts. This is important because financial gatekeepers like banks have obligations to report suspicions regarding money laundering. And it's hard for them to uncover trade-based money laundering based on the data that they have. You know, large volume of transactions, limited oversight, but it's not necessarily impossible. And it's been a focus for regulators, law enforcement and banks in the UK. You know, when you look at our suspicious activity report framework, there is a specific code to be used in relation to trade-based money laundering schemes, which you input into your suspicious activity report to help law enforcement collate that intelligence. You've seen our regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, looking at the risks in trade financing. And all these things together help build a picture, help gather intelligence for law enforcement, and mean that you've got some intelligence to maybe launch more investigations. And kind of anecdotally, over the last couple of years, there does seem to be more activity in relation to trade-based money laundering in terms of law enforcement investigations around the world, because of course money laundering is a global issue, and also you know compliance concerns that companies have around such issues. Thanks, Jonah. So when I was involved in the investigation of narcotics trafficking, I really used to marvel at the ingenuity of drug traffickers and their importation methods when they concealed narcotics and things like golf cart tires, engine blocks. We had a case where they were concealing units of heroin in printing press rollers and the proceeds of the heroin sales in smaller print rollers. So the inbound heroin came in the big print rollers, the outbound went in the smaller print rollers so that the people involved could tell the difference which ones contained money and which ones contained heroin. So it's not as though these narco traffickers aren't very adept at moving goods from one country to the next. In simplest terms, the purpose of money laundering is to get money back into the hands of the criminals at the apex of the criminal organization. So, you know, say, for example, a a Mexican cartel, they produce and export narcotics for sale in the United States, and they sell it through wholesale and street level drug distribution networks in various cities. This then produces currency. That currency is then collected and commingled with the operating capital of, let's say, an export company that's set up to buy goods for export to Mexico, possibly through a free trade zone. What types of goods are in high demand in, let's say, the Cologne free trade zone in Panama and Mexico that are attractive to money launderers and that, you know, maybe they're sold below market prices And then how does the money eventually find its way back to the traffickers? So whenever I think about a money laundering scheme, the first thing I think is transaction cost. All these money laundering schemes cost money to administer. They cost money to administer in terms of the bribes the organized criminal gang has to pay. It's got to pay off people to avoid detection, to keep its scheme going. But the actual transaction itself will have a monetary cost. So in terms of a trade-based money laundering scheme, goods will be purchased, they will then be sold, maybe they maintain their value, maybe there's a decrease in value, likely there's a decrease. The whole thing's going to cost some money. So in a sense, whatever's being used for this, it's like Alfred Hitchcock used to refer to something as a MacGuffin, 
a MacGuffin's the device that drives the plot of the film, and it doesn't really matter what it is, right? So in Pulp Fiction, the MacGuffin's a briefcase, which is kind of a golden glow when you open it up. In the Maltese Falcon, it's the Maltese Falcon, or it could be anything else. It doesn't really matter. And kind of when I look at trade-based money laundering, I think of it as the MacGuffin. Most of the time, it doesn't really matter. It's kind of what's there and what they can use. There are certain advantages to different types of products, like particularly ones we've discussed, valuation as is an issue. So maybe it's an electronic component, pretty hard to value. That might be a useful MacGuffin for this kind of thing. But it's really a matter of what's available and where does the opportunity present itself. And actually, in some ways, there does need to be a degree of thought to this, because if you've got a trade-based money laundering scheme where you are shipping goods back to a country where they're produced, that's going to be pretty suspicious, and it's a red flag. Whether it's a red flag or that's detectable on its own or not, we can probably debate, going back to the tip-off point. But if you were like exporting, I don't know, PPE to China or copper to the DRC, that's kind of going to raise some eyebrows because really it should be most likely flowing the other way. And I think in some of the black market peso exchange schemes that you, Scott, have mentioned, there have been instances of gold being melted down and then brought again and again into the same country and out of that country in a sort of never-ending cycle as part of trade-based money laundering schemes. And of course, that would work with a commodity like gold that can be manipulated in those ways. Alternatively, there are other black market peso exchange schemes that rely on goods being purchased in, say, the United States and then being sold to actual genuine consumers in Mexico or another Latin American country. And in that instance, you need to have products that you can actually then sell to consumers in the same way as you would operate a legitimate business. And that's where products like textiles would come in. And I guess one of the, I wouldn't say entertaining, that would be being too, too flippant, but one of the curious examples of a trade-based money laundering scheme involved the Los Angeles fashion district with a lot of textile companies operating there being exploited for black market peso exchange. And after a significant operation against that business by the United States law enforcement agencies, the United States introduced uh, geographic targeting orders that were aiming specifically at those kinds of businesses in that area in recognition of the vulnerability that was being exploited there. And so I guess that just goes to underscore the diversity of different kinds of products and techniques that criminals might seek to utilize. No, in fact, I think you've described the probably the most challenging and elegant form of trade-based money laundering where it's simply the purchase and sale or exportation and sale of goods in a country where there's consumer demand and to ensure that the ability to convert that into liquid cash is to sell it at or below market value to literally dump popular consumer goods into a market. It doesn't have to be well below market value. It just has to be competitive where people see the value of buying the goods from your seller as opposed to a competitor, you know, in a competitive environment where other people offer those products for sale. And, you know, then the, the money has been converted and transferred into the market where the, the head of the snake 
is residing. So it's, um, it's certainly some challenges ahead for people seeking to deter trade-based money laundering. So we've talked about the challenge, but is there cause for optimism? Are there some easy wins out there to combat trade-based money laundering? I wouldn't call them easy. There are some possible wins. Easy would be an exaggeration. I mean, the Financial Action Task Force that you have alluded to at the outset has recently published a new report on trade-based money laundering, and a very significant chunk of that is devoted to the subject of public-private partnerships. And I think that's an intuitively appealing and understandable response to trade-based money laundering. Because if you think about, well, okay, what is the problem? The problem is partly that banks might have some part of the information that is relevant to uncovering a TBML scheme, especially if they provide trade financing, although often they don't. Shipping lines would have access to the actual containers that they deliver from point A to point B. Customs agencies might also have some insight into the transaction. But all of that information is rather disparate and it's not being brought together and analyzed consistently. And so when you look at that landscape and you think about the problem in those terms, three words flash in your mind and that's public-private partnership. And there are countries that have had various public-private partnerships, but those are typically focused on the financial sector, like the Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force in the UK. So they don't encompass operators from the logistics sector. And also, I don't think there has been any serious study of how effective those partnerships are specifically in addressing trade-based money laundering. And it feels to me as though this is one of the fruitful areas of future inquiry, because there are some partnerships that do some work in TBML, including the one in the UK. But what have been the actual results and how can those results be improved? I think that's that's really one key component of that. And another issue that I would flag is going back to the example of geographic targeting orders in the US. If you're a law enforcement agency, you might have some sense of what sectors are more vulnerable to misuse than others. And then I think the question you should ask yourself is, well, what is the suite of tools available to us to get information from that sector? And it might be some sort of public-private partnership. It might be going to a court and getting court orders. It might be something along the lines of geographic targeting orders. So I think one of the challenges is prioritizing high-risk sectors and then being creative about the kinds of tools that you might utilize as law enforcement to get the information that you need from those sectors. It's really interesting you mentioned the Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force, Anton, or GEM letters, I like to call it. They've done a lot of work, and I think they've been perceived as kind of a success on the global stage in terms of the sort of law enforcement activity generated in the UK, but that model and concept's been exported overseas, and the UK certainly helped with that by sending law enforcement officials overseas to help other countries set up this idea of the law enforcement, the regulator working with the financial institutions. And there was a focus on trade-based money laundering in, in one of their working groups. I'm not sure what the output on that was. And actually, it's very hard to get data in relation to trade-based money laundering and suspicious activity reports filed in the UK, for example. This idea of public-private partnership over the last kind of 10 years means that we've got a much better understanding of how our financial intelligence unit works and the information that inflows into it on a kind of sector-by-sector -sector basis. 
but at the moment we don't have any granularity on trade-based money laundering. It does seem that at a policy level, it's becoming more and more important to the UK. And when you look at December 2020's national risk assessment, as compared to the 2017 or 2015 risk assessments of the UK's money laundering issues, trade-based money laundering is much, much more a focus of the latest national risk assessment. So at a policy level, it seems to be increasing in focus. And on a practical level, driven by FATF, driven by the other policy issues at UK level, I'm certainly seeing an uptick in private companies concerned about this issue and concerned about making sure that trade-based money laundering red flags are addressed within this compliance framework that they already have. And it is a complex issue. It is difficult to detect. It's difficult to disrupt. And it seems to be very difficult for law enforcement to investigate and prosecute. So I think really when I look at this as an issue, it's disruption really is the kind of the key focus. And disruption will come essentially from financial gatekeepers where there's a touch point there, but it's going to come from the private sector conducting due diligence on their counterparties and their supply chain and making sure that they're not an unwitting conduit in one of these schemes. I think you're you're dead on. I mean, I think that's the challenge. You know, if there are going to be inroads to counter trade-based money laundering, that's where they're going to come from. Well, gentlemen, this has been a great discussion. I really enjoyed hearing from both of you guys who are so well-versed in the subject. It certainly helped enhance my own understanding of trade-based money laundering and the challenges that it presents. So that's all the time we have for today. Uh, you guys have been terrific and really appreciate both of your time today. Thank you, Scott. Thanks very much. So that was White & Case partner Jonah Anderson and Lucy, research fellow at the Center for Financial Crime and Security Studies, Anton Moisienko. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. And if you have an idea for a topic or guest that you'd like to hear from on a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening.